Our dear Father, please now bring us together, be with us, uh, open our hearts to hear what you alone would have to say to us, that wherever we are down and, and slow and uh, depressed and overwhelmed, we might be renewed by your Holy Spirit and uh, come away with a, uh, a good dose of the Christian hope to carry us through through this week and on into next year and all the days of our lives. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And so this is Christmas. Another year is done. Excuse me. And so this is Christmas. And what have you done? Another year is over. And new one's just begun. That was by whom? John Lennon. I don't know why... That song, it just sticks with me this time of the year. I, every single year, I end up singing it in the shower. Uh, I, 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 every, everywhere I go, it just kind of clings to me, and I try to get it out of my mind. Uh, and I tell myself, you know, quit, d- do a different song or something, but I won't do it. And so this is Christmas, and what have you done? Another year is over, and the new one's just begun. I don't know why. It's, Christmas, I, and I speak for myself. And I'm sure that, that you don't feel this way at all. But Christmas uh, is a tough time uh, for me. Uh, it, it's, uh, I, I find it emotionally draining. I, I find that I, I, I'm never ready. I, I find I'm, I, that I'm uneasy about it. I'm not sure about, about anything. And it, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way because, uh, because of Craig's sermon. And, and if, you, if, you, if you grasp the, 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 the depth of, of, of what he preached, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, it's finished. Uh, he, he's already done everything necessary to be done. And so, but we need to rejoice in that. We, it needs to be a season of, of joy and not one of uh, uh, emotional fatigue and frustration for things done and for things left undone. Not telling you anything you don't know, but if we're going to really... Uh, feel the profundity of the season and the joy of the season, and we just have to basically connect with the real meaning of, of what the, the birth of Jesus means and, and what difference he makes uh, in, in, in our lives. And what I want to do to, this morning is to do that by connecting with two of the traditional Anglican colleagues for Christmas. The first a word, uh, Christmas, you know, is a, a, a term that was not used until, as I understand it, the church history buffs, correct me if I'm wrong, about the 12th century. Now, the feast itself was celebrated uh, in, in Rome uh, as early as the 4th century, 4th, 5th century, and it was, it was uh, introduced uh, to because Christians wanted something to replace uh, the old pagan festival of the birth of the sun, the winter's solstice. And so to, to substitute that old pagan uh, service, they, they, they put in the festival uh, of what we now call Christmas or Christ's Mass. Uh, of course, it's interesting what they try to do in fourth, fifth century. Now in our culture, they're trying to undo it. In other words, they, what they're doing is bringing the old pagan festival, what we can now call Festivus, and trying to replace that, uh, so and, and Festivus uh, has well, it gained its worldwide popularity in 1977 
I understood, I understand, of course, when Seinfeld, when it was on Seinfeld in 1977, ever since then, it's been pretty much uh, celebrated, and it's celebrated, by the way, on December 23rd, officially. Now, now Seinfeld didn't create Festivus. It was already with us, and it has been there since the mid-60s. Festivus uh, came out with, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't, the Beatles didn't do it, but it was during that era that, that, that the whole idea of Festivus was born. But it's kind of interesting. What they did in the fourth century was to put Christmas in the place of a pagan festival, and now we try to undo it by putting Festivus in place of Christmas uh, anyway. It's important to stay connected with the meaning of the incarnation, and I want to do it by looking at, at these two colleagues uh, that we have, and I assume you all have a, a printout. But first, let's talk about the colleagues themselves. You know, every, every Sunday in, in church, when you pick up a bulletin, you'll see collect of the day. Uh, and I'll never forget, somebody came up to me uh, and as I was talking about the collect of the day, and they said, I'm so glad you said something, because I thought it was the collect of the day. Uh, and so that was, it was always did seem to be an odd time to think about taking up the offering plate. So <clears throat> it's not the collect of the day, but it's the collect uh, of the day. Uh, since the first English prayer book, and so I'm going back now to the 16th century, specifically 1549, uh, our prayer books uh, since 1549 have gone through a whole lot of changes. But thanks be to God, one thing that has not changed are the collects. Uh, there's, a, there's a collect for every single Sunday, and it's right there in our prayer books if you know, if you know how to uh, find it. A lot of these collects that we see in our prayer book are pre-Reformation. Uh, some of them go all the way back to the 5th century, 6th uh, century. So uh, uh, most of them are post-Reformation, but some of them are pre-Reformation. Uh, and they, they're profoundly good. Otherwise, Thomas Cranmer would not have put it in the prayer book. Uh, they had to go through Cranmer to get into our prayer book. So we can count on all these colleagues as being uh, the real deal. But I personally find it really spiritually uplifting <clears throat> that when I'm praying of one of the colleagues uh, that, that I'm praying the same prayer that Christians have prayed as early as the 5th century. Uh, and I find that spiritually uh, uplifting. And often they would pray that prayer on the same Sunday in the liturgical year in which we are using it. Now, uh, uh, I don't know how many of you read the previous dean, uh, Paul Zoll, wrote a book, The Prayers of Thomas Cranmer. And I'm not sure that book is still in print. He and Fred Barbie, I think, wrote it together. But that's a good book. If you can get your hands on it, uh, I highly recommend that book to you. But Thomas Cranmer uh, himself, as I said, he himself wrote a substantial number of the colleagues that we now have in the prayer book. But he didn't write them all. And the reason why we call them the prayers of Thomas Cranmer is because he's the one that put them in the prayer book. So it's called The Prayers of Thomas Cranmer. Uh, though he didn't write them all, he wrote most of them. Do you ever hear some people, and occasionally I do, say, the thing about you Episcopalians, you use canned prayers? You know, and the colleagues are certainly one of those things. Oh, that's just a canned prayer, you know. Uh, well, I love Lewis, C.S. Lewis on that. He said the thing about extemporary prayers, you know, one that, uh, that the pastor wrote that week or one that happens to hit him on the spur of the moment, the thing about those prayers is we have this difficulty. First place, when he gets ready to pray, we don't we don't know whether we can mentally join in on the prayer uh, until after we heard it. It might be phony, it might be heretical, 
I mean, I was in prayer one time at a church when the guy started rattling on about gun control and saying, I said, you know what? You know, I, and, and so w- what we're called to do in extemporary prayer, I'm not saying that extemporary prayer is wrong. I'm just saying one of the problems with it uh, is that uh, we, we are called to do two things at once. Number one, assess what's being said and be sure it is theologically and scripturally sound according to our, our limited knowledge. And then secondly is also pray. And so those two things, to assess what being said and also pray, they're hardly compatible. And there's one thing, Lewis makes a great point of that. And he says the good thing about the, these traditional prayers, that we have, these, these treasured callings and, and ancient prayers uh, that we have that are stored in our prayer books, the thing about it is that, that they have withstood the, 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 the test of time, uh, that we know what's coming, and so we can be freed up uh, to pray it. So I just don't buy this thing about canned prayers being, you know, is, 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 is saccharine and, and, and detached. I don't, I, personally, I don't buy that at all. I find that I can pray them from my heart a whole lot quicker uh, than when some guy gets up there and, and says, let us pray, and then he starts praying whatever is on his heart. Not that it's, sometimes that's wonderful, but anyway, I won't beleaguer that. Now, before we get to the great nativity colics uh, as a way to, to, and there are two primary ones that we've used at Anglican Church, before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about the colics themselves and ask the question, what is a colic? Or better yet, what, what distinguishes just a, a colic is a prayer. So what makes a colic a colic? It's not because one is ancient <clears throat> and the other, other is modern, and it's not because one is fixed and the other is, is extemporaneous. Uh, in fact, there are many prayers that are not a colic that are very ancient. We read like the prayer of St. Saint uh, uh, Chrysostom, that we read a morning prayer. Lord, uh, maybe not so much to be loved, but to love. You know that prayer we often use. Some of those are prayers and not colics, but they're, they are certainly ancient. Uh, so a colic, uh, uh, that's not what makes the difference. Uh, and it's not that, uh, that all colics are fixed. You can actually pray an extemporaneous colic. A colic uh, is simply uh, a, a prayer that has one focus. It has one primary a focus on which you are praying, uh, and uh, it usually has a certain form, liturgical, if you would, form, consisting of five parts. Now, having said that, I, re- I, I, I direct you to the handout. It's five parts. The address, the acknowledgement, the petition, the aspiration, and the pleading. Let's go back up. The address. Now, who are you talking to? Normally, this first person in the Trinity that's usually the way we start a colic. Uh, dear Lord, or Almighty Father in heaven, or uh, O Lord, our Heavenly Father, Almighty and Everlasting God. You can make it, you, 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 can, you can add to it, or you can make it just as simple as Father in heaven or God. It's not always the first person of the Trinity, but in our colics in the prayer book, 95%, maybe higher than that, or the first person of the Trinity. The second comes the acknowledgement. <clears throat> now, the acknowledgement reflects some quality or characteristic of God that will be related to the thing that we ask him in the petition. For instance, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known. All right, so you got the address, Almighty God, acknowledgement, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known. See, that, that's a characteristic of a God that's related to what comes next in the petition. The petition will be cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of our Holy Spirit. 
So you see how the acknowledgement is related there to the petition. The petition is the actual thing we're praying for. It can be for whatever. It can be cleansing. It can be forgiveness. It can be protection. It can be direction. It can be comfort. It can be for more faith. It can be to, uh, to uh, enlighten my mother-in-law. It could be uh, uh, whatever it is. God bless. Uh, And finally, and then you can get to the aspiration. Now, the aspiration is what do you aspire, aspiration, what do you aspire to do with that which you ask for in the petition? That's why we're asking for what we're asking. And this is normally introduced by the conjunction that, not always. Almighty God, address unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, acknowledgement. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That... This is what we aspire to do with that petition, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. And then, of course, comes the, ple- the, the, the pleading. Uh, now, the pleading is crucial. Uh, how do we plead our case? What right do we have to approach God? and make of any petition whatsoever. Is there a lawyer in the house? There are lots of lawyers. I know. I think we counted up. There's 250-something lawyers at the Advent. So, but anyway, so I say there's a lawyer in the house that's tongue-in-cheek. How, how, how do we plead our case? Because it is, it, it is through Jesus Christ alone that we find access to the Father. I cannot, as I've taught on prayer here before, I cannot overemphasize this too much. And you notice it's not a... It, 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 if, if you just say, in your holy name we pray, what happens? That's politically correct and all that. that. That's fine. But what you've done, the pronoun goes back to the person you addressed, right? That goes back to the first person in Trinity. Oh, God, thus and such and thus and thus and thus and such, in your holy name we pray. Well, see, that's, that's good. It's politically correct. That's fine because you, you, you haven't lifted up Jesus. But Jesus is the mediator. So don't be ashamed to say the name. The pronoun goes back to the father technically and i'm not saying our salvation is at stake i'm certainly not saying there's any kind of secret thing you got to do before your prayers are efficacious i'm simply saying that the reformers and the prayer book and cranmer and all the pleading was just a crucial part of this that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through jesus christ our lord who reigns with you in the holy spirit now and forever or through the son or through the lamb of god however you want to end it but you use the mediator let me read a little scripture from 1 Timothy 2, where St. Paul <clears throat> says, First of all, then, he's talking to Timothy, I urge your prayers and thanksgivings. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So he starts off there when he's, exo- when he's encouraging people to say their prayers. He starts off saying, Now, I want you to pray because there is one God. Now, they don't get any more fundamental than that. But that's about as fundamental as you got. There is one God, about as basic as it gets. But then he goes on to say, and there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. So the very fact that there's a mediator would imply what? We need, it implies alienation. There's an obstacle between you and God, between me and God, between the person who's praying and God, there's alienation. Something has come between us. What has come between us? Well, any number of things. God's transcendence. 
I mean, uh, the Muslims got it right on that. Allah is so transcendent, you know. In fact, one of the things about the incarnation that the Muslims don't like is the fact that Allah would come in as a, as a weak little baby. I mean, that, that's, that's uh, uh, or, or that we can actually call a father, daddy, father in heaven. I mean, that, Allah is too transcendent. But they got, they got part of that is right because God is transcendent. That becomes between us and God. God's holiness, but above all, our sin. And then God's justice because of God's sin. All of that separates us from God. And so what we need is a mediator. And let me say again, over and over again, any religion that doesn't supply a way or provide a way, I should say, that does not provide access to God is worth about two cents. Any religion that doesn't provide access to God, to, our, to the transcendent, holy God, who is totally antithesis to sin, that does not provide access to him, is really not worth having. And every religion that I've ever seen, that I've ever studied, says the way we have to make up for that gap is to clean you act up. And I can't do it. And Christianity is the only one that says, I have great tidings of good news to all people. For to you is born this day a Savior who will be our mediator, who will do this for us. I can't do it. So that's why the pleading is so important. Again, in Ephesians, Ephesians says, But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ, through the cross, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And then how about another further on in Ephesians chapter 3? All of this was according to the eternal purposes which God has realized in Jesus Christ our Lord. And through Christ, we now have boldness and confidence of access through our faith in Him. So, why do we have boldness? And why are we so confident? Because we've already accepted Him as, as our mediator. And the good news here, people say, well, that's just so depressing. It's, how, it's, it's not depressing. Good Lord, it ought to be the most wonderful thing in the world because now, no matter how worthy you are, no matter how worthy, unworthy you feel, no matter how distant from God, no matter how big a jerk you were the night before or whatever, you can go to your knees, say your prayers, and then use the mediator. Because the mediator is good enough, let me tell you. Go through him, let him make the connection. And, I, you know, I, I, I don't have the nerve to pray without adding the pleading. I just, because to me it's tantamount to not praying. So, uh, anyway, I, I, sometimes I go to somebody to say a prayer and lead the mediator out and other people around say, oh, that's beautiful. That was so beautiful. And I, what do you say? You know, I say, no, it wasn't. It wasn't beautiful at all because you left the mediator out. Put the mediator in. I said, Frank, lighten up. And this is Jane, you know. Once the form, these five parts of the collet, once it gets ingrained in your mind, you will be able, when, when, you, when you, someone says, hey, Frank, would you say a prayer? Or, hey, Clay, would you say a prayer? Whatever. You can actually, if you're thinking in terms of colics, once you get it, it'll unfold beautifully. You know, our Father in heaven who see us, our sins, even clearer than we do, open my eyes to see my own sin that I might rejoice uh, in Christ through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, that was a collect. That was a collect right there. It had the address, had the acknowledgement, had the petition, petition had the aspiration, and it had the, uh, it had the pleading. 
Anything about colics before we move on? I'm going to take a look at these two nativity colics now because they that that they should they really have the heart of Christmas right encapsulated in in the colic itself. If not, we'll 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 look at first one. The address simply, O God. The acknowledgement. This is going to reflect some quality or characteristic of God related to the thing that we will be asking Him. O God, the address, the acknowledgement, who makest us glad with the yearly remembrance of the birth of Thine only Son, Jesus Christ. Petition. This is the thing we're going to be praying for, so that we may, with sure confidence, behold Him when He shall come to be our Judge. Hmm? Grant, grant that we may joyfully. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm sorry. Acknowledgement, who make us as glad with the weaker remembrance of Jesus Christ our Lord. Grant that we may joyfully receive Him for our Redeemer. That's the petition. So that we may, with sure confidence, behold Him when He shall come to be our Judge. It's the aspiration, and then the pleading. Uh, you notice it says, "Who liveth and reigneth with Thee," but that is. Jesus, because he's been talking about Jesus in the colic. So the Jesus there is understood, if you're following me there. But this is a beautiful colic. <clears throat> now, this is one of the colics, excuse me, <clears throat> that comes from the early Roman liturgy. Cramer did not write this one. Uh, this one came from 6th, 7th, 8th century. Cramer liked it, <clears throat> and he put it in the prayer book <clears throat> as one of the two colics. In our 1979 prayer book, we have three colics, but <clears throat> only that's only was in essence 79. In all the previous prayer books from uh, 19 from uh, 1549 on, there were two colics, and this was one of them. Cranmer loved this one. Uh, again, how is it <clears throat> that we may with with confidence behold him when he shall come to be our judge, as opposed to with fear and trembling before? Behold him when he shall come to be our judge. What's the difference? Because we have received him beforehand as our redeemer. So that is uh, that is one of the colics that that I think really lies at the very heart of Christmas. The second one, however, is dearer to my heart simply because it it is Thomas Cramer who wrote it. It's solid as a rock. It's all right here. <clears throat> it's all profoundly theological. The address, again, to the point, Almighty God, acknowledgement, who has given us thine only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and at this time to be born of a pure virgin. Now, I'm not going to get into the necessity of, of the virginity of Mary except one more time, pause to say, that, you know, don't let any well-meaning uh, person talk you out of the the necessity of the virginity of Mary because without that we got to rewrite the story and to say that either there was premarital sex or else Mary had a lover whatever you know we have to rewrite that story and not only that it would it would it would mean that, that Jesus was not sinless because if you have a biological father and a biological mother then they're going to inherit the old Adam uh, but if the Holy Spirit has conceived, then it's cleansed. Uh, so uh, that that's the reformers saw very early on that that was not up for grabs, and this this is a legitimate 
uh, part, necessity of the story, and it's interesting that Cranmer puts that in in this colic to be sure that we uh, are reminded of that. <clears throat> Petition. Grant that we, being regenerate and made thy children by adoption and grace. All right. <clears throat> There's the essence of the Christian gospel. This reminds us of our status as children of God. A couple of weeks ago, I was very honored to be, well, a couple of weeks ago, I preached at Beeson Commencement Exercise, but uh, sometime before that, I was very honored uh, that Dr. George invited me to preach that service, uh, and he gave me Jeremiah 45 uh, as the text on which he had hoped that I would base the sermon, and that text goes, Jeremiah is talking to Baruch, but Jeremiah is, God is speaking through Jeremiah to Baruch and says, seek thou great things for yourself, seek them not. Seek thou great things for yourself, seek them not. And so Timothy George gives me this thing to preach on, and I'm thinking, hmm, I don't, I never worked with that one. So, uh, <clears throat> so I, but I did, I did work on it. And I worked hard on it, uh, and it's come to be one of those scriptures that, like the bright morning star that I've talked about so much, it kind of stands out in the midst of the sky. Just you can you can pull them out of context and distort the meaning, but if you get it right, these stars can lead us as we make our pilgrim's journey. So it just stands out brilliantly. And now, forty-five five is one of those verses for me. Uh, Seek thou great things for yourself. Seek them not. Now, notice it didn't say, don't use what gifts that God has given you. This got nothing to do with using gifts that God gave you, but the, the operative word there is thyself. Seek great things for yourself. Seek them not. Now, this was spoken to Baruch, but it's spoken to servants of God uh, in all ages. The Bible doesn't mention what Baruch was, was, was seeking for himself, but whatever... Whatever the nature of Baruch's ambition, God saw that it was unhealthy, saw that it was, uh, that it was unbecoming a servant of God. Misplaced ambition is what is, what is being warned here against. And misplaced ambition uh, is it's pretty common. Uh, and, and it's a common in the church, and it's a common, it's a common thing among people who are very precious to God. Uh, you, you know, you uh, remember... Uh, the uh, disciples themselves, James and John, you remember they said, Lord, grant us, when you come into your kingdom, grant us to one sit on your right hand and the other to sit on your left hand. But they didn't know what they were asking for, did they? It would have been more like, Lord, grant us to hang one on your right and one on your left like dying thieves. Then they would have gotten it right. But... Many of Baruch is to be found in the house of God. And misplaced ambition is one of those vices that a very few men of the world are completely free of. We hate it to see it. We don't like to see it in our colleagues. Uh, but uh, we don't fail to see it in myself. I tell this on myself. I've told it to you before. I'll tell you it again. This whole thing about misplaced ambition and, and striving to, to be better and, and to have these high titles and things. Uh, on myself, remember a classmate of mine in seminary, uh, wrote a, a paper on the doctrine of election, uh, and his paper was lifted up as being extraordinarily good, and it was it, it was subsequently printed in one of the Anglican theological journals. Uh, but I had written a paper also, same class, on the same topic, 
and my paper was better. <laughs> Jane thought it was better. I thought it was better, and I sent a copy to my mama. She thought it was better. <laughs> now, we've, as, as Craig said in his sermon, that happened a long time ago, and I haven't thought a thing about it since. But <clears throat> and the thing about it is, is that same colleague now is a bishop. So he gets to wear these purple shirts and go out into the marketplace and get salutations, get thrown his way, and so forth. <laughs> but you see, envy... Envy comes with misplaced ambition, and it's, a, it's the dark side of human nature. But I want to talk to you really personally about this, and I, I know I'm belaboring this thing that comes out of this college, but this is so important. Uh, honestly, isn't seeking great things for yourself uh, in terms of wealth, in terms of fame, in terms of position, uh, it's a way of justifying yourself, if, justifying yourself a little guy. Now, things are great or small, great or small, by comparison only, because what would be great uh, for uh, someone in a, in a blue-collar position uh, might not be great for someone who's a CEO, you know, but it, it doesn't matter. It's all, it's all relatively. It's all relative. And selfish ambition at any level, as subtle as it may be, is a struggle, is it not, to justify yourself. It is to aim for achievement in something in order to uh, justify yourself make yourself feel good and justify yourself in front of, in front of you or, 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 or your colleagues. And if that's the case, then we can never do enough to quench our thirst uh, for greatness or glory. There's always something more to be done. There's always a higher uh, plateau. Uh, and any greatness that you can call your own, uh, it can be gone uh, tomorrow. And in that sermon, I, I used the... the uh, Example of Tender Mercies with Robert Duvall. Anybody remember that movie? Robert Duvall plays a part. Well, you can get it from Netflix. It's good. But Robert Duvall plays the part of Max Sledge. Now, Max Sledge was a country western singer, and he, and he made the big time. Uh, and, and Max Sledge was, had hit top, but he lost it because of alcoholism. He lost everything. And after he had gone all the way down <clears throat> and recovering, he was, uh, and lost it all, he was in a small Texas town pumping gas into his old pickup truck. And a girl comes over to him, young girl, said, hey, didn't you used to be Max Sledge? And he said, yes, ma'am, I guess I used to be. And, you know, that was a powerful line. Yes, ma'am, I guess I used to be. But my point is, is that you seek great things for yourself and you get it, you, it's vulnerable uh, to, to, to losing it. And it's always, it's a treadmill of justification. You always, you, 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 never, you never get there. There's always something else. Because the antidote to justification by accomplishment, Luther hits the nail on the head. Heidelberg disputation. Church history buffs out there, 1518, at the beginning of that meeting, that great Heidelberg meeting, Gust, uh, Luther put forward the theology of the cross as opposed to a theology of glory, in which he said, and I quote, the thirst for glory is not ended by satisfying it, but rather by extinguishing it. The thirst for glory is not satisfied by by accomplishing it, satisfying it, is 
the thirst for glory is not ended by satisfying it, but rather by extinguishing it. A fundamental insight of Luther was that religion is the default mode of the human heart. And human approval, uh, professional success, power and influence, all these things serve as a functional trust of the human heart rather than what Christ has accomplished for us. And as a result, we end up on this never-ending treadmill of justification by accomplishment. Now, one of the greatest transformations from this kind of life to one that totally uh, lives his life according to what Christ has accomplished would be St. Paul himself, who wrote, All these things that I once called great things for myself I now count as refuge in order that I may be gained Christ and be found in him. He said, Paul did, Far be it from me to glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ which by the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. But my point in all of this is, when you think about it, do you seek great things for yourself, seek them not? Let me assure you that one has already done that. It, it, the great things are, it doesn't get any higher than being a child of God, which is what this colic uh, is referring to. Thee. There is nothing higher than becoming an adopted child of God as I like to say, the adoption papers were signed on Good Friday. It was signed in Christ's blood, and it was sealed in Christ's blood. And no one can ever, that is not, that is, what that is, is, that is not who you are by nature. That is who you are uh, by status. And no one can ever take that away from you. So when you ever feel God is calling us to greatness for ourselves, I think we can be sure that we've been acted on not by God but by the devil himself who just loves it when we, when we grasp and fret and scheme for great things for ourselves. There's no, there's no help in that. But where we find help is what this collect uh, brings us to take a look at, uh, which uh, is <clears throat> grant that we being regenerate and made thy children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by the Holy Spirit through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the same spirit, ever one God, world without end. Now, I spent a lot of time on, on great things for yourself, I guess, too much. But, I, again, back to the colics and, 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 and to nativity colics, uh, anything that I've said, any comments, objections, observations. Who wants to give a stab at Doing an extemporary call it. Hey, you know what? You, you know what? Do take this home and and play with it. I promise. And write some colics for yourself. Just just practice with it. an arbitrary word for, for that colic. A collection of prayers. Is it collection? That's a good shot. That's a good example. That's a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, Fran. Did you go? Well, I, I think it's worth. I think it's worth reminding us all that Cranmer didn't make up these words. In many of the colics, it's straight scripture. He just hearkened back to what had been written well, and given. Well, that's not only true. Of the, that is definitely true of the colics. Yeah. But that's not only true of the colics. That's true of the whole prayer book. That is, right one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got to throw that in. <laughs> that is true. 
of, of all the prayer books, 1549 right on through the, uh, the, the, the modern revisions. Now, God help the Episcopal Church when they want to try to revise the liturgy. Because that, that, you know, that, that, would be, that would be such a shame to lose uh, the, the foundation of our tradition and the beautiful, not only just the beautiful uh, uh, language and Elizabethan language, just, just the beauty of it, which is among the most beautiful things ever written, but the theology behind it, and it is a profoundly scriptural. It's, it's 90% scripture, and so are the colleagues. But going back to your question, I need to do some research on that a little bit more. It's a Latin word and uh, about exactly what I was in. I think it's a collection of colleagues, the, the collect of the day among all the other collections. I think that's, that's what it is, but I could be wrong. I, I do know it doesn't have anything to do with collect. Well, that just reminds me speaking of coming from Scripture, that Mary's response to the angel, a lot of times, you know, the song, Mary, Did You Know? Well, Mary knew Scripture very well, and her response is drawn from Scripture, and she understands the prophecies yeah, and the revelation has come a good point. to her. Hey, did anybody think that Mary today in the pageant stole everybody's heart? <laughs> that just, she, she just absolutely stole everybody's heart. Hey, let me tell you what. You tell her, you tell her that every, everybody was saying, oh, she touched my heart. She cracked my heart. So she, she has really opened the door to Christmas spirit here, I think. You tell her that, please. Okay. Well, we might get out a little early if you guys want to have some coffee, and unless you hadn't already been to church. So, so I would just, one more time, play with the colleagues. Write yourself some colleagues. Save them and hand them down to your children so they can throw them away. Or do whatever. <laughs> <clears throat> they might save them for their grandchildren. Who knows? They may end up being printed sometime. But save them. It's a great way to think. It's a great way to pray. Let's go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God.